Welcome back to Libromania, a podcast for the book obsessed from the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern. This is chapter 15, in which I chat with the inimitable book critic John Wilson about the three books that were nominated for the 2019 Pulitzer Prize. A lot of books that are not really particularly great have won all kinds of prizes and a lot of wonderful books never have. And so in one sense, you don't want to make too much of it, but it is a kind of cultural news. It's a significant prize with a long history. And so both for the, the book that is uh, ultimately chosen and, and, for, and for the other books that are finalists, that is a, a piece of uh, what's happening in, in the art of writing at this moment. Back on April 15th, the 2019 Pulitzer Prize winners were named. For fiction, Richard Power's novel, The Overstory, won. And the Pulitzer Prize Committee called it, quote, an ingeniously structured narrative that branches and canopies like the trees at the core of the story whose wonder and connectivity echo those of the human lives amongst them. It's a fascinating, complex novel, what Barbara Kingsolver called a gigantic fable of genuine truths. This is Richard Power's 12th novel, and I would say it's not an easy read, but it is the kind of complex, challenging, and extremely interesting novels that, uh, that would be awarded the Pulitzer Prize. But there were also two other finalists, There There, a novel by Tommy Orange. It was named one of the New York Times' 10 best books of the year and was called by Margaret Atwood an astonishing literary debut. And then the third finalist was Rebecca Mackay's The Great Believer. It was also a National Book Award finalist, as well as a Pulitzer Prize Award finalist. Of course, it's always a big deal when the winners and the finalists of an award like the Pulitzer Prize are named. It means a lot for the literary world, and it has a lot to say about what is meaningful to the current literary world at large. When such things come up, when I want to understand what's going on in the world of literature, it's hard to beat the inimitable John Wilson. John Wilson was the former editor-in-chief of Books and Culture, and he's currently working as an editor for the Englewood Review of Books. His reviews and essays have appeared in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, First Things, National Review, Commonweal, The Christian Century, and many other publications. He has a ton of experience thinking about books, talking about books, reviewing books, and of course, reading books. And I knew when I invited Mr. Wilson on this show that he would not um, spare criticism. And he has criticism for each of the novels on this, on this list of finalists. But there is one that certainly stands out for him. Before I get into that conversation with Mr. Wilson, I want to let you know a little bit more about each of these novels. First, The Great Believers. This from The Dust Jacket. In 1985, Yale Tishman, the development of director for a Chicago art gallery, is about to pull off an amazing coup by bringing in an extraordinary collection of 1920s paintings. Yet, as his career begins to flourish, the carnage of the AIDS epidemic grows around him. One by one, his friends are dying, and after his friend Nico's funeral, the virus circles closer and closer to Yale himself. Soon the only person he has left is Fiona, Nico's little sister. Thirty years later, Fiona is in Paris, tracking down her estranged daughter who disappeared into a cult. While staying with an old friend, a famous photographer who documented the Chicago crisis, she finds herself finally grappling with the devastating ways AIDS affected her life and her relationship with her daughter. These two intertwining stories take us through the heartbreak of the 80s and the chaos of the modern world as both Yale and Fiona struggle to find goodness in the midst of disaster. Rebecca Mackay is the author of The Borrower, The Hundred-Year House, and Music for Wartime. 
Her work has appeared in the best American short stories, Harper's and Tin House, among others. She lives in Chicago and Vermont with her husband and two daughters. And then, of course, there's There There, a novel by Tommy Orange. And again, this from The Dust Jacket. Fierce, angry, funny, heartbreaking, Tommy Orange's first novel is a wondrous and shattering portrait of an America few of us have ever seen, and it introduces a brilliant new author at the start of a major career. There There is a relentlessly paced, multi-generational story about violence and recovery, memory and identity, and the beauty and despair woven into the history of a nation and its people. It tells the story of 12 characters, each of whom has private reasons for traveling to the big Oakland powwow. Jackie Redfeather is newly sober and trying to make it back to the family she left behind in shame. Dene Oxendine is pulling his life back together after his uncle's death and has come to work at the powwow to honor his uncle's memory. Opal Viola Victoria Bearshield has come to watch her nephew Orville, who has taught himself traditional Indian dance through YouTube videos, and has come to the powwow to dance in public for the very first time. There will be glorious communion and a spectacle of sacred tradition and pageantry, and there will be sacrifice and heroism and unspeakable loss. Here is a voice we have never heard, a voice full of poetry and rage, exploding onto the page with stunning urgency and force. Tommy Orange writes of the plight of the urban Native American, the Native American in the city, in a stunning novel that grapples with a complex and painful history, with an inheritance of beauty and profound spirituality, and with a plague of addiction, abuse, and suicide. An unforgettable debut, destined to become required reading in schools and universities across the country. Tommy Orange is a recent graduate from the MFA program at the Institute of American Indian Arts. He is a 2014 McDowell Fellow and a 2016 Writing by Writers Fellow. An enrolled member of the Cheyenne and Arapahoe tribes of Oklahoma, he was born and raised in Oakland, California, and currently lives in Angels Camp, California. And then, of course, there is the actual winner of the overstory by Richard Powers. This from the back cover of the paperback version. National Book Award winner Richard Powers' 12th novel is a sweeping, impassioned work of activism and resistance that is also a stunning evocation of, and a peon to, the natural world. From the roots to the crown and back to the seeds, the overstory unfolds in concentric rings of interlocking fables that range from antebellum New York to the late 20th century timber wars of the Pacific Northwest and beyond. There is a world alongside ours, vast, slow, interconnected, resourceful, magnificently inventive, and almost invisible to us. This is the story of a handful of people who learn how to see that world and who are drawn up in its unfolding catastrophe. Richard Powers is the author of 12 novels. He is the recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship and the National Book Award, and he has been a Pulitzer Prize and four-time National Book Critics Circle Award finalist. He lives in the foothills of the Great Smoky Mountains. So these are the three novels that were the finalists for the 2019 Pulitzer Prize. And as I said, the overstory by Richard Powers won. I wanted to understand more about these novels, understand more about their place. I wanted to understand more about these novels, and in particular their place in the current world of American literature. I want to understand what it means that these three books were chosen. And so, as I said, I invited uh, Mr. John Wilson to come on and chat with me about these three books. Without further ado, here is our conversation. And as always, I think you'll find John Wilson talking about books quite interesting. Enjoy. Well, first of all, uh, thank you for thank you for joining me. Um, when I want to know more about what's going on in the book world or understand something, I feel like uh, turning to John Wilson as a resource is uh, can't do any better than that. So I'm, oh, I'm honored. Well, I'm honored that you're willing to join me here. Well, I'm glad to be here and uh, talk about these books. Yeah. So a couple of weeks ago, I guess maybe it was about a month now. The Pulitzer Prize was was awarded, and there were there were three finalists, and then the winner. And right. 
Um, the the finalists were The Overstory by Richard Powers, There There by Tommy Orange, and then of course that was uh, that was shortlisted. Was that shortlisted for the National Book Award too? Or no, I'm, no, the next one was The Great Believers, which was a National Book Award finalist. That's by uh, Re- Rebecca Mackay. And when these were award, when these were announced, when when this shortlist was, these finalists were were named, and then Richard Powers was awarded the prize itself. At that point, had you read all three of these? No, I had read two of them. I had not read the Mackay book, but I had read Richard Powers, and I had read. Tommy Orange. And I subsequently, uh, when you suggested we might have this uh, conversation, then I uh, read The Great Believers. Hmm. So I guess the first question then is, um, Richard Powers wins for the overstory. When you think in ter- when you think about the prestige of the Pulitzer Prize and you think about you know what what it means and all the books that have won it and all the authors who have won and and so forth do you do you think richard powers and the overstory belongs in that that catalog of or that canon of pulitzer prize winners absolutely i before i say anything more about the book i just want to step back for a moment and uh, and talk a little bit about how we talk about books. And if I go on too long before (laughs) zooming back to, to the overstory, uh, just, just let me know. Yeah. But, um, but there are all kinds of ways to talk about books that don't necessarily cancel each other out, depending on the purpose and the occasion. And it seems that a lot of time people fail to, uh, recognize that and and they assume that there's a certain kind of way of talking about books that that that's the the, the way <laughs> and you can also have misunderstandings about um the way people relate to books so that for instance we talk there's been a lot of discussion recently about the state of book reviewing in yeah, yeah. America and I love reviews, as you know very well. Um, mm. I, I started loving them when I was in high school, and I first started reading them, and I thought, oh, this is such an amazing thing. And, of course, they can be like anything else, including novels, of course, and, and cars and uh, <laughs> pizzas. They can be uh, really awful, or they can be uh, okay, yeah. or they can be great. So, yeah. um uh, but as a form, just like all those things, you know, in their ideal form, you know, the ideal pizza, you know, um, they, they, uh, you know, each, each has its own, um, special, uh, virtues. And mm. so, um, when you read a book and for, for me, this has been especially true as I've gotten older. When I was, when I was young, I, I, read all kinds of stuff. And I wouldn't say I read indiscriminately, but it was easier for me to just pick up a novel and, and read it. And as I've gotten older and especially in, in more recent decades, it's not that I don't find fiction to read. I mean, I don't think a week, it's very rare that a week passes that I don't read at least a couple of novels. And in some cases I may be rereading, but I find that there are a lot of books that I can just tell by looking at uh, that I'm not even, I, this just isn't for me. <laughs> that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not good, 
Sure, but sure. I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to read this book. And so, if if you um, think of that, you realize that m- for most people, most of the time, not all the time, but most people, most of the time, when you're reading a book, it's something that you've chosen to read. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have to read it. You're not assigned it. You know, you're not in college anymore. You're 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 choosing it out of all the other things you could read. And then there's if you're talking about a book that you haven't chosen to read, you're, the way you relate to it um, is going to be quite different. And so um, in the case of Richard Powers, um, that's over at one extreme for me because I've read all of Richard Powers' novels. Hmm. I think this is his 12th novel, yeah. And, yeah. and I've written about some of them. And um, I'll read you a little bit about a piece I did a year ago when uh, I first read the old story. And at the time I wrote this piece, I was in uh, San Antonio visiting family. And I mentioned that for this trip, I brought two bags, one filled with clothes and one mostly filled with books, among them a copy of Richard Powers' new novel, The Overstory. This book, which I've just started, has set me thinking about the relationship between reader and writer at once distant and intimate. I'm thinking especially of the relationship a reader has with a living writer whose books he or she has been reading more or less as they appeared over the years. I'm sure some of you began twitching as soon as the word relationship appeared. I can imagine someone thinking, I don't have a relationship with X, damn it. I just read his books. (laughs) But I don't know what other word to use. And it's interesting that in many cases, it's the distance between reader and writer that makes the intimacy possible. As in Heim Potok's wonderful account of reading Brideshead Revisited at the age of 13 or 14, an experience that directed him to become a novelist himself. And here I'm stepping away from reading this little column from a year ago to say that Wendy and I love Heim Potok, and we love we love his novels. And we ended up hearing him speak um, four different times. But the very first time we heard him speak was many years ago in Pasadena, and at the Pasadena Library. And he gave an absolutely riveting talk that lasted over an hour. He had no notes. Um, nothing, just, he was standing up there. He had obviously given variants of it before. And in the entire time, in the entire time, he never, he never stumbled. (laughs) He never, um, repeated a sentence. Hmm. It was uncanny and it was so powerful. And he told the story of, of a librarian who knew his, um, uh, precociousness as, as a reader and had directed him to this book and how here, here he was being brought up in a Orthodox Jewish community um, in New York City. And he was being directed to this book, Brights Ever Visited, that came from an entirely different world. And that it was reading that book that made him want to become a writer. And um, so, um, so that, uh, he, he in, in, in everyday life, uh, he and Waugh probably wouldn't have gotten along. <laughs> they certainly <laughs> are very unlikely to have what you might call a relationship, a yeah. friendship. <laughs> and yet that distance 
um, the, you know, the immense distance between them also allowed for uh, a tremendous uh, intimacy of mm-hmm. a kind that would be impossible with a lot of people that that we know and and uh, that we see uh, every week. Anyway, okay, so. More than a decade ago, I wrote a piece about a writer I'd been reading for ages. We'd never met. We still haven't. We didn't move in the same circles or view the world from the same angle. He saw the piece, tracked down my email address, and wrote to me. He said, among other things, you understand me better than my own family does. Well, of course, I don't have to tell you, I I was totally just taken aback. And also, I, I treasured that. But there again, it, it tells you something about the peculiar intimacy that you can have, not with every book, not with every writer, but with certain certain writers who you, yeah. you, you know. Um, yeah. I'm sure Richard Powers yeah. will never send me an email like that. He's an exceptionally gifted writer. And if you haven't given him a try, now would be a good time. I've been reading him from the get-go. And whenever I read a new book by him, I'm continuing something like, but clearly different from, a conversation with this person I've never met and likely never will. Hmm. At heart, I said of Powers, reviewing his novel, The Time of Our Singing, he's a religious novelist, so this seems not to have been noticed by most of his admirers. Perhaps that's because the faith that informs his work has nothing to do with the personal deity of ordinary belief. At the very moment they experience the utter bleakness of abandonment, Power's favored characters glimpse some benign possibility built into the universe, itself vulnerable, faintly but unmistakably detectable amid suffering and injustice. Hmm. Certainly a religious vision informs the overstory, a novel about trees. With the ferocity of an Old Testament prophet, Powers indicts our blindness and selfishness, a grotesque narrowing of vision. One of his principal characters learns early on that human wisdom counts less than the shimmer of birches in a breeze. <laughs> I'll read that one more time because you might say that's the overstory in a nutshell. <laughs> that's a quote. Human wisdom counts less than the shimmer of birches in a breeze. Hmm. That sounds almost like a line from the Psalms. Hmm. It is also a test for the reader. Some will thrill to the contempt for the human. Some will feel a jolt of free-floating religious awe. Some will decide that Enough's enough, though most of those are unlikely to have started the novel in the first place. (laughs) Me, I'm reading Richard Powers, seeing the world through his eyes once again, not quite 150 pages into a 500-page novel. I'm in for the long haul. So that, as I said, I wrote late in April a year ago, and I went on to finish the book and and recommend it to uh, people I thought would like it. And... So I was very glad when uh, it won the Pulitzer Prize. I think prizes are overrated. I mean, they're nice things to have, you know, and I'm always really excited when the Nobel Prize in Literature is announced. And I was disappointed that because of their um, foul-ups and people's bad behavior that they didn't award it last time around. But um, on the other hand, you know, uh, a lot of books that are not really particularly great have won all kinds of prizes and um, a lot of wonderful books never have. And so 
in one sense, you don't want to make too much of it, but it is, I think you and I, when we first were talking about doing this conversation, mm-hmm. it is a kind of cultural news. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the, it's, it's, it's a significant prize with a long history. And so both for the, um, the book that is, uh, ultimately chosen and, and for, and for the other books that are finalists, that, that is, that is a, a piece of, uh, what's happening uh in in the art of writing at this moment you know i was we were we were talking about you know what does this mean before we, we were talking on twitter actually you know what does, yeah. what does this mean for literature and, I, and it, this is one of those books that really gets me thinking about that question because in some ways it's kind of an esoteric book formally it's quite uh, i would say fairly unusual anyway um it's certainly not you know certainly not uh, told in a traditional sense. The po- he did a lot of uh, interesting things with point of view. And um, there's a, I don't mean this in an uncharitable way, but there's a, there's a sort of density to his prose at times and the way he explores what's going on in his characters' heads. And so, and, and again, I don't mean that to be critical and maybe you may even disagree with that assessment with what I'm saying, but that, that, that this book won the Pulitzer Prize is, is fascinating to me. So I'm curious what you think the choice of this book means for um, the state of literature in America right now, the state of, of um, I mean, like you said, the awards are a little overrated. Um, you have to kind of take, take their, take them with a grain of salt, so to speak. But they also do, as you, as you suggested, tell us something about what our culture values in, in books. And so do you think that well, I, let me. I, so, what do you think this book says about what our culture, what, what the literary culture um, values in literature in 2019? Well, I would say first that uh, Powers is always someone who has inspired strong reactions, mm-hmm. and there there have always been readers, including uh, reviewers and. Uh, others commenters on the literary scene who have marked him out right from his first novel, three farmers on their way to a dance. They, uh, right from the beginning, they've, they've recognized that he's an exceptionally gifted writer and they, they often, people will often talk about describing him as, you know, the brainiest American novelist (laughs) now at work and that sort of thing. Then on the other hand, there have always been dissenting, uh, voices. And, um, just right around the time that the prize was announced, the, the New Yorker, uh, published a very long and extremely negative essay that was partly on Power's career and, and, and more on this book in particular, uh, by, by the eminent critic, James Wood, uh, who, um, was was extremely uh, harsh. I mean, Wood's a brilliant critic, but I I thought that quite apart from uh, one's taste, and and that is we you and I have talked about this before. That's an irreducible yeah. part of the literary experience, and we can't yeah. Yeah. we can't uh, ever forget that. Um, I, yeah, I thought it was. Uh, I was surprised to tell you the truth. I thought. Uh, I thought it was over the top and and actually made him look kind of silly. But definitely, uh, Richard Powers is not everyone's cup of tea. And so the fact that he won this year in itself, just taken by itself, I don't think it says much 
one way or another about literary culture in 2019. I mean, it does say that people are still writing hugely ambitious books. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, but on the other hand, I've, I've have a few friends who have served on, on, uh, juries of this kind. And, you know, it uh, much depends on the contingencies of, you know, who, who are the, who are the committee members. And, and yeah, yeah. so, but I do think it's interesting if we look and we're not talking now about the book's ultimate, uh, lasting power as a, a as a novel as perhaps a capstone of uh, power's career and so on and so on but i think it's interesting if you look at the three books together um uh, possibly possibly it wouldn't be fanciful to read something into the fact that um all three of them especially uh the overstory and there there mm-hmm. but to some extent, also the great believers, they're all books that have an enormous number of characters. And, um, especially again, the first two, uh, you might say, um, uh, to the point of, uh, forcing readers to almost keep a scorecard, you know? Yeah. Like reading Tolstoy or something. Yes, and it's and even though and you might say well and there there the the uh, various sections have the name of the character mm-hmm. who uh, is is the in some cases actually the narrator of that chapter or in some cases is is the focus that at least tells you whose whose consciousness is central to the chapter but still even uh, even many of the people who praised the novel Tommy Orange's novel. Uh, to the skies, e- even they tended to say there might be too many characters, you know. <laughs> and then yeah. uh, in the Great Believers, you have two characters. Uh, it's a it's a novel that I should say that has alternating chapters. One is set in the mid '80s primarily, and the other is set primarily around 2015, and uh, in each one of those threads, there's a there's there's a sort of center of consciousness, but then they're enormously populated. Uh, both of the threads are populated with other characters, so it's interesting that um, all three of those books rose to the top uh, with this particular set of hmm. of uh, readers, and that even though in some ways the books each one is quite different from the other in some ways. They they all have that uh, in common, and they suggest a um, a desire, at least on the part of these particular uh, connoisseurs of, <laughs> of fiction, for uh, for something different. You know, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. whether there's whether there's a an ongoing uh, appetite of that kind and what we'll see in, as, as the um over the next let's say 10 years of of american fiction it will be it will be interesting to see hmm. do you think that the overstory is richard power's best novel well time will tell i think i think that my favorite of 
his novels so far is um, The Echo Maker. I think that uh, I think that he is writing in a way that, in some ways, is um, extreme and and uh, crazy, even in a kind of in an attempt to correct a, a craziness that that Bill McKibben. I just was reading his most recent book, which is called Falter, and you know. It's something like has the human the subtitle something like has the human game played out its course or you know but it's not a it's a I, I tremendous admiration for McKibben and um, and I think that part of what he and many other people are saying about this particular time is that there is something about our world here in the United States in particular but also globally that is. Um, that is seriously out of whack and out of control in ways that don't just have to do with the human uh, uh, bentness that has distinguished us from the start. And I think that it's very difficult to to register the reality of that and and not uh, you know and maintain your equilibrium. And I think that what Powers has done in trying to overcorrect against a, uh, uh, a kind of madness, you know, kind of collective madness that includes the destruction of, of trees among other things, but much mm-hmm. more than that. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, uh, that he has, uh, overcorrected. Um, so that makes me hesitate about, um, calling it his best book, but I think it's a very important book and I think it's worth reading for those, you know, for those who, have the uh, uh, who are on that wavelength. Mm. So we've got the overstory there, there, and the great believers. And yeah. uh, let's. I want to talk about each of those other books here for a second as well. Um, let's talk about the great believers first, at least briefly, and then I've got kind of a question about all three of them again. One of my favorite things about the great believers. I mean, this is kind of silly, but on Goodreads, Rebecca Mackay. She reviewed the book. She left five stars for her own book. Which, and <laughs> and she, she commented on it. I'm only giving this five stars because I'm married to the author's husband. <laughs> and I just, That's funny. I, I, thought that was, I thought that was great. A great plug for her. Um, you can tell she's got a sense of humor about it. So The Great Believers. Um, I'll, I'll be offering some summaries of these books in the introduction. So I've already covered that. Uh, I'll record the, for those who are listening already. Oh, great. They, they've already heard it, but I'll give some summaries. So we don't need to spend any time on the summaries. But The Great Believers was the one you read most recently. You, you got right. it in the last couple of weeks, I believe. And, and you don't... That's into, right. Probably the most, you know, you've probably got the most uh, recent... Well, at least maybe the most recent recall. Although I don't know. You, maybe you remember, remember everything you read anyway. But, <laughs> so what was your... Uh, what was your... Um, what was your take on why this book was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize? And as I mentioned earlier, it was a National Book Award finalist as well. So it's getting a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, complimentary run. And it, it seems yeah, to really, really yeah. captured people. Why do you think that is? Well, in the first place, it let me add, it was also selected by the New York Times as one of the 10 best books of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was admired by by many different, uh, you might say, uh, panels. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it wasn't just, or just, wasn't just one set of people. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, having said that, I was, I was telling you at the, 
at the beginning that I think people often um, lose track of the sense that, you know, we were attracted to some books where I can go into a bookstore and walk down the fiction aisle and the vast majority of books that are there, I can just practically glance at and, and my sense is, now I probably, this probably isn't for me. And yeah, yeah. Um, the value of being so, a self-aware reader. It, well, and, and, um, and so I'm a little hesitant. Uh, I'm a little hesitant to judge uh, Rebecca Mackay's book the way I would judge something by that, that I would have picked up to, to read just on my own, you know, because it, it to be honest, it wasn't, um, it wasn't really my cup of tea. I mean, and there were, there, there are a number of reasons for that. Part of it had to do with, I would say that, you know, um, and again, it sounds like a caricature. It sounds like a caricature. If I say so much of it, so much of it is about people's feelings because, uh, we, we all have feelings and, um, feelings are important. And, and, uh, you know, I'm, I, there are lots of books I like where that is, is, is a very, uh, crucial dimension. And yet, uh, I found that really exhausting. Um, so uh, can, can I ask you a question about that? Sure. So being a self-aware reader and you had a, were able to recognize that for yourself, but do you think the thing that maybe was difficult for it, or difficult about it for you was the thing that was so appealing to so many other people? I mean, do you think that, that well, that's a very, I didn't think of that, but that's a very, uh, I mean, it seems stupid, but now that you now that you say it, no, now that you say it, it seems so obvious that 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 might be. Again, I'm a little hesitant to say that because sure. you know it, when you say, well, you know, especially if it's a book that you yourself weren't drawn to, and you say, well, why did this book? You know, you can come up with you know conspiratorial ideas like, oh, it was because of this, but yeah. It, yeah. you know what you just said might be exactly right, and 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 it's hard to put that way because, for instance, there's a writer who I absolutely adore. I mean, she's one of my favorite writers, Penelope Fitzgerald. And I can imagine someone saying, well, you know, you say, you know, this, there's, oh, this is about people's feelings. and But um, you love Penelope Fitzgerald and, you know, it, aren't, aren't, you know, isn't, isn't that part. And, you know, I, I really can't, it's hard for me to uh, analyze the difference except that there's a, there's a more of a distance in uh, Fitzgerald that for me doesn't diminish the, uh, uh, you know, the human reality of it. I'd also say there's a, there's a fiction writer I really like, and she's a friend. Wendy and I both love her and she loves us. She lives in Massachusetts and her name is Linda McCullough Moore. And she also teaches fiction. She's, she's, you know, just a brilliant teacher of fiction. And, about a year ago, I told her about a novel that I had just read, contemporary novel uh, by uh, a woman who I hadn't read before. And um, and so she said, oh, you know, I'll look at it. And um, so the next time we exchanged emails, I I said, well, what did you think? You know, and, and she said, I didn't get very far. I like sentences, you know, <laughs> she said. And so I thought that was kind of mean to me. I wasn't worried about the author. The author wouldn't know. But so I emailed her back and I said, well, you know, I like sentences too, but I knew what she meant yeah. Um, yeah. because her own, her, and, and so another thing about the, uh, the great believers and, you know, it's obviously 
the product of uh, immense labor, including a lot of uh, research on on several different fronts. But mm-hmm. whereas with Richard Powers, you were talking about his um, style, which is is certainly distinctive, and mm-hmm. these long and spooling sentences and all that sort of thing. But but part Don't of the write ple- Faulknerian. <laughs> Yeah, but part of the pleasure for for me in reading him is is um is those sentences, you know. Yeah, and yeah. and there just were hardly any sentences. Now, you know, there there are other things there are other things that are happening in in uh uh in writing. I mean, the sentences don't exist for their own sake and all that kind of thing. And that's why sure, I say sure. I I really feel like um, I'm not the best, uh, I'm not the best person to, to, uh, evaluate the, the novel, but I will say this, that I was struck by what I mentioned to you earlier. Um, this, this, uh, sense of, of, of rapidly shifting, uh, focus back and forth between the two strands, uh, mm-hmm. and then the, um, uh, the, the the very ambitious uh, sweep of characters who come on stage and off stage, yeah. uh, and so on. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, if you had to put your finger on the thing that that you think does make this book so beloved for so many people, or at least loved enough to to shortlist it on on you know awards finalist lists and in news <laughs> lists and so forth. What what do you think it is? Is it that reliance on emotion that you mentioned earlier? Is it that sweeping characterization? I mean, do you what do you if you had to put well, your I think what's part the most of it I, I mean, we haven't even really talked that much about the I think part of it part of it is the it has an extremely powerful reality at its core, which is, um, the, the devastating, uh, AIDS epidemic and the unfolding of that. And that's part of why, um, the, uh, the juxtaposition of the two, the two time streams. So, so to speak are part of why that's important is that, um, certainly people have written about, um, Many many novels have been written that, in some way or another, uh, reflect on or based on explore this experience of loss and how people reacted to it, and the um, the slowly dawning uh, knowledge and uh, all of the the conflicts. Uh, all of that has been explored, but but I don't think I've ever read a book that. Um, looked at it both in terms of the the period when uh, increasing numbers of people were dying every year, and there was uh, not even at that time a any kind of reliable long range treatment, and and on the other hand, looking many years later, um, really a, about thirty years later, and and in a sense, uh, um, showing how, um, even though the historical situation now has changed very much, there are still these threads of that, um, of that, uh, experience and all that it entailed, um, reaching to, uh, more or less the present time. And that was unusual. And I think that, um, 
I think that that certainly uh, had to be part of the reason that it stood out. Um, maybe a small part. I doubt if this was a big part of the reason that it stood out the way it did for some readers, but it told it from a somewhat unfamiliar angle because most of the stories that have explored the reality of AIDS, you know, in, in, in novelistic form, mo most of them haven't been set in, in Chicago, which is the primary setting for the, not the only thing, but the primary setting for the earlier time thread. And then, uh, Paris is the primary setting, uh, for the, for the 2015 roughly thread. Um, uh, that you know that may have been that may have been a factor too, but I don't think that that was critical. It was interesting for someone like me, who uh, has lived now in the Midwest in the suburbs of Chicago for uh, twenty five years. Uh, but but uh, at, at any rate, that's the best I can do on that front. <laughs> well, let's talk there there before we before I let you go. Okay. Tommy Orange, it too was one of the New York Times 10 best books of the year. I like the great believe. Yeah. yeah. This was a debut novel, I believe. It was. And and you know, my relationship to this book was different from with Richard Powers, but also different from uh Rebecca Mackay because some months, quite a while before uh the book came out, I read I read a lot of books about Native Americans, and and I also read a lot of books by Native Americans. It's a lifelong interest, and and I know a, a few writers, and a couple of writers had told me about this book before it was even um, announced, and they said, you know, this that there there was more talk about this book in the the sort of community of. Uh, native writers than anything in some time. And so I was aware of that from, from what they told me and I was looking forward to it. And, uh, and so, you know, I, as soon as it came out, I, um, I read it. Um, my take on it was quite different from, I mean, it got a rapturous review in the New York times and a lot of other, I didn't think that it was, um, nearly as good a book as a lot of very good readers thought that it was. But I think that, I think that Tommy Orange is a writer who may write some very good books over time. And that may sound, <laughs> that may sound condescending. It's not meant to be at all. That's just, uh, that, that was my judgment on, on reading the book. I mean, I, I felt that it was seriously flawed in some ways that, uh, didn't, at all uh, appear in some of the um, prominent accounts of it, but I also felt that there was genuine promise. And uh, because I'm really interested in native writing, uh, I am hoping I'm, I'm looking forward already to, to his next book. Hmm. What do you think about this book? I mean, could you put your finger on that again? What do you think it is that, that uh, made it so so popular that, I mean, was it, I guess here, here's a question I have for you that's related to all three of these books, because in all three books are in some way, and I'm going to use this word pretty loosely, uh, somewhat political. Um, they're, they're, they're interested in, um, 
marginalized people. Oh, you're absolutely right. Things like that. Yeah. And do you think that the politi- the political nature of each of these three books, um, in Power's case, I, I suppose, you know, even environmentalism plays into that. Do you think that 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 we are at a time in our sort of cultural consciousness that we are actively looking for for books that that can represent our age that that bear those political markings that are concerned with political things and so they lend themselves to being given awards like this i think oh i think you're abs i think you're absolutely right um i would i would completely agree uh with what you say and in fact i what i would say is that for a lot of people their their sense is that um those are really the those are really the only books that are important, you know, mm. that, that there's something kind of trivial, um, about books that don't, that don't clearly have that, uh, dimension. Mm. Uh, and of course I would, I would, um, very strongly <laughs> disagree with that, but I think that you can see that not only in the case of this particular set of books, but if you look at a number of other uh, recent um, prize lists, short lists, that sort of thing. Uh, but you don't just have to look there. Uh, it's something that's very much in the air. But having said that, that doesn't mean that, um, that books that, that do have these qualities, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily not good books. And it doesn't sure, mean that sure. people, that yeah. there's something like, like, you know, when people sometimes people sometimes use the word political in a dismissive way. I know that's not the way you were using you were using it descriptively. Yeah. I hesitated you know? to use the word for that reason. Right. Yeah. Right. But but people sometimes uh give the idea that that oh, you know, that's it's it's you know, political or that's about issues or something like that. Well, of course, that in itself is neither a sign that something is gonna be very good or that it's going to be not good you know sure, sure. it's just the only thing that's troubling about it is that um it reduces literature to to one aspect of what literature can very importantly do you know mm-hmm. and and that, that there are, there are other kinds of books that may not uh, touch on any of these and putting the word in quotes issues that that might be quite wonderful just as there are um some such as I, I would say the overstory is such a book. I'd say that, you know, for, for all, even, even a kind of madness at the core of it. Um, uh, I, I, I also think that it's, uh, it's a really exceptionally powerful, uh, book. And so, mm-hmm. um, I, I think you hit the nail on the head there. And I, the only, um, the only hesitation I would have is one that you obviously were feeling yourself because you weren't, you weren't wanting to say that in a reductive way, mm-hmm. but, but I, I completely agree with, with that uh, judgment. You know, I was thinking about this because I recently read um, the new novel from Christian Kiefer, which is called Phantoms. And it's, I, I quite enjoyed it actually. And, but, but there is this sense that it's, it's about, um, I, I don't know if you've heard of it. It's about, um, the time when, you know, after Pearl Harbor, the government was sending Japanese American people to internment camps. And so that's a key, ah, a key concept. Well, I haven't heard of it. And I'm glad you mentioned it because I'm, I'm very interested in Asian American history. And, uh, um, and so, uh, 
you know, I'll, I'll have to, uh, to check it out, but yes, that would be another example. Well, I, and I was, I had the privilege of interviewing the author. Um, it's not, it hasn't aired yet. It might, by the time this goes up, we haven't posted it yet, but, but one of the things that we talked about, it was, it became very clear that he was trying to give voice to these people, you know, to people who were, Right, marginalized as as you know, in, as people say, and one of the things that I is kind of a, I, I suppose a concern for me is is that we will, I don't want to say this without, it's hard to say this without sounding, um, you know, insensitive, but in some ways, are are we going to start valuing novels that that are overly or primarily consumed with such things at the risk of or at the expense of leaving out um, perhaps better novels that are not primarily concerned with, with giving voice to marginalized people, which is not to say, I want to clarify that we shouldn't give voice to marginalized peoples. Um, right. Right. So yeah. How, so it seems like there has to be a, we're, we're working through how we balance those things out. And I don't mean to say that they're there and the great believers in the overstory don't belong, don't should not have been given. Oh no, no, I didn't. Given. I, I'm not, I don't hear you saying any such thing. Um, yeah, yeah. That it just seems like we're working out that balance as a as a sort of as a culture of readers. Yeah, and it, again, it's very hard. It's very hard to uh, to know um, where where all this will go in, let's say, ten years or twenty years. Um, uh, but but certainly, what you're mm-hmm. describing is part of the scene at this moment. And um, it's a complex phenomenon, uh, which we're still just in the early stages of. And of course, it's not unique to our time. I mean, as long as fiction's been writing, fiction has been people have been writing fiction about the times that they live in, and various you know eras become more politicized. There's all kinds of oh, great absolutely. Vietnam novels that were you know very political, for example. So it's yeah. not, new, not new. Every generation's kind of working that out. Yeah. Well. Let me ask you this before I let you go. Last question. Okay. I, so we have these three novels that were finalists for the Pulitzer Prize, The Overstory. One, it sounds like you would probably of these three have picked The Overstory as well. But I'm curious if you have a couple of other novels that you thought uh, that would have been on your short list of finalists for the Pulitzer Prize. Oh my goodness. I didn't, um, I didn't prep you with that question ahead of time. So Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's I, unfair. Um, yeah, well... No, it's not unfair. It's not unfair, but I will, I will, um, somewhat ingloriously take a pass on that, but at least I can, at least I can say that, that I was in the early, uh, um, camp for, uh, the overstory. So fair enough. Um, well, thank you for your time. Thank you for discussing, uh, these novels and the, and the state of fiction in America right now. Um, I know, it is, like I said, there's no one I'd rather talk to when I've got a question about what's going on in, in the world of literature right now. So, Well, thanks, David. It's always fun talking about books with you. 